It's getting you ready here. Joe, when you're at the back, when the video comes on, if you could kill the lights for me. Oh, he's gone. Where's he gone? Someone could kill the lights for me at the back uh, when the video was. I'm going to invite the lovely uh, Hannah Claridge, who is going to come and read for us. Then Jesus went with his disciples to a place called Gethsemane, and he said to them, Sit here while I go over there and pray. He took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee along with him, and he began to be sorrowful and troubled. Then he said to them, My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. Going a little further, he fell with his face to the ground and prayed, My father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. Then he returned to his disciples and found them sleeping. Couldn't you men keep watch with me for an hour, he asked Peter. Watch and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away a second time and prayed, My father, if it is not possible for this cup to be taken away unless I drink it, may your will be done. Thank you, Hannah. All right, someone at the back could kill the lights. Um, we're going to have a slightly loose-formed sermon today. I hope that's going to be okay. It has a loose form to it. That doesn't mean it's unprepared. That just means that it's never been done like this before. So um, if someone switches the lights off, we're going we're gonna to watch a video. And those here with children, um, this is a truthful video, but it's slightly upsetting. So just, just be with, uh, with your kids. Uh, it's nothing that they can't see. It's nothing that they don't know. They know the story of Gethsemane. They know what happens. Gethsemane is my, my text, and I don't want to be um, criticized later for not giving it an appropriate sobriety, for not thinking about it. And so what I decided to do, I don't know if you're one of these people who takes little bits of the Scripture and just takes them to heart. Um, one of our writers, a guy called Paul, says, you know what I do when I encounter culture? Anything I see, I take it captive for Christ. And I'm that sort of person. When I see films and music and stuff, I like, I, and an idea comes to me. I, 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 and so the song that's about to be played is in a film. It's a very lovely film if you want to borrow it. It's a, a romantic film. It's called Once. Um, and it's a song about heartbreak and all that sort of stuff. And every time I've ever heard this song, I have, I've been transported to Gethsemane. I see this song as the backing track. So with the help of Mel Gibson, I have simply made this song the backing track. Um, So let's watch it. No. 
point trying to change it when your mind's made up when your mind's made up there's no point trying to stop it you see you're just like everyone when the shit falls all you want to do Uh, sufficiently sober, I feel. Right. So, the challenge I've been given to preach on this morning is going to appear on the screen behind me. Uh, it's been published to, uh, to the discipleship manual that we're looking at, and this, this is what I'm, I'm being asked to look at. So, let me read it for you. Uh, submission, obviously, that text that Hannah read, that's the, that story that you've just seen. Um, based on that passage, not my will but yours, our words easily spill out attitudes of submission singing worship songs, saying the Lord's Prayer, even every time when we call Jesus Lord, but our hearts are a little more stubborn. We happily go along with God's will uh, all the time. It conforms with ours, but what about when it really matters, when God calls us to things that are so opposed to how we have chosen to live our lives? When He calls us to lay down our lives, do we choose to say, not my will, or do we choose to try and explain to God that He doesn't really understand our particular situation? Why is it so difficult is it because we need a refreshed vision of heaven? So wish me luck. That's what I've been, that's what I've been given to look at. Um, 
I reckon there are as many responses to that as there are people in this room. In fact, I reckon that we need to slightly increase that number by a power figure because there are as many responses to that as there are people in this room as there are different parts of it where people's hearts might chime with different bits of it. In fact, we'll, we'll add an additional power figure to it, which is that it depends what time it is in your life, how you would respond to something like that. It would be great if we could all talk about that, but this is a monologue, not a dialogue. And so um, what I'm not going to do is I'm not going to put my size nines into it and tell you what I think of that because I want to respect what you think of it, okay? But I'm going to talk about the, the, the type of thing that it is, and I'm going to talk about Jesus' treatment of the type of thing that it is, and I'm going to talk about Gethsemane as a paradigm for the type of thing that it is. What you're looking at is a self-narrative. There's an assumption that you can take this narrative onto yourself, that something, it says something about you. And Jesus was very familiar with self narratives. And he taught about them, uh, and he encountered them. And he also, as I will explain at the end, crazy as this seems, um, he wanted to do something about breaking them in Gethsemane. Uh, and if, uh, if I'm fortunate to get all that into sort of 24 minutes, that'll be, that'll be really wonderful. As I said, we're going to be a little bit funky, a little bit multimedia. So we're going to uh, look at uh, a treatment of the, of the prodigal son. It's already been read beautifully for us by Sarah and Annabelle. Look at the fierce complexity of what Jesus was saying. Look at all the different possibilities for who could be in that narrative and then compare it with this and think about all the different possibilities. Um, but rather than just tell you the story of the prodigal son again, I thought I would show you the story of the prodigal son. So if you're, if you're one of the sort of three people who listened to this recording at some later point, it should still make sense, but there'll be a bit of silence at the moment while, we, while I set up. So what I need, essentially, is two sons. I need a younger son and an older son. I wonder if there's anybody in there. Ah, oh, there's two over there. Why don't, you, why don't you two, why don't you two come up here? This is George and Sam. For those who don't know, I can't imagine there's anyone in this room who does not know that this is George and Sam. And what I'm going to do, if we put the lights off again, this will add an extra layer of beauty to this, is I'm going to metaphorically do what we always do to our young people. I'm going to project something onto them. Right? Here's how that goes. In the story of the prodigal son, we have a younger son. That's George. And we have an older son. And they are both sons of the same father. And what I'm going to do for you is I'm going to rerun this. This is the acronym. This is the bit of good old-fashioned preaching. There's an acronym to help you remember. I'm going to rerun the story. Good luck remembering it because it's complicated. But that's my point. It's a really, really complicated narrative that Jesus is telling. So let's rerun. Let's rerun the story of the younger son. He wants to, I'm going to have to sit down, it's going to make life easier for moving my slides. He wants to repeal the grace of his father. It's not that he doesn't recognize that he lives under the grace of his father. He just doesn't want it to apply to him anymore. He wants to repeal that authority over him. In fact, the reason he does that is because he wants to embrace something. And Jesus tells us, and the story makes it obvious, that what he wants to embrace is a life of self-determination, a life which will contain the moral code that he thinks it should contain. Uh, and Jesus summarizes this nicely by calling it 
wild living. Look at George. Look at him. Look how wild he wants to live. And so he rejects the love of his father. He basically says, I can't wait until you were dead to get my inheritance. I wish you were dead, because then I could do what I want. He rejects the love of his father. He unsuns himself. He says, I don't want to be your son. I want to be my own man. And we know at the end of the story that he recognizes that that has happened. Uh, and he just says, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he also unbrothers himself. Look at his handsome brother standing next to him. He, he, he wants to desert him as well. In fact, he wants to leave him in a far worse condition than he found him. Because if he takes away half the family income, the brother's livelihood and the livelihood of everybody else in the estate is very seriously damaged. So he unbrothers himself. And the, the reason he gives for this is he needs time. He needs time, and he wants to spend that time. He can't quite see it on the bottom of George. We won't get him to move. He wants to spend that time in a far country, not in the near country. He doesn't want to be near to the father. He doesn't want to be near to his brother. He wants to get his stuff, and he wants to go away, and he wants to be who he needs to be. So let's rerun the oldest son's story because sometimes the oldest son gets a positive press in this story and he does not really deserve it. I mean, look at him. Does he deserve anything positive? Take one step slightly to George. There you go. He resents the grace of his father. He, he doesn't want to leave. It's not like his brother. He's not got the, he's not got the, the, the bravery to leave. But we can tell later, when the, when, the, when the other brother arrives back home again, that there is a deep resentment building up in this young man. He resents the grace of his father. He doesn't want to leave, but he doesn't want to all have it be part of him. In fact, he embitters himself living under the grace of his father. You tell in that tirade of abuse that he gives at the end of the story, where he says, I've done all these years, I've been slaving for you, that his self-image is the self-image of someone who wants to rescind the love of the father. Someone who wants to say, I don't want it to have an effect on me. I'm not going to reject it like my brother. I'm not going to, going to fail my responsibilities. But I rescind it. I do not feel his love. And he unbrothers himself. Because when the younger brother comes home, well, he says to his father, this son of yours, who has squandered our estate with prostitutes, gets the fatted calf. And the father spins on his heel and says, it's not this son of mine. It is the brother of you who has come home. So he unsuns himself by the same token. He needs time. He needs time to consider something. And what he needs time is, is he needs time in the near country. He needs time with his father. So let's introduce the father to the story. Here he is, lovely, handsome chap. Now this is not the father of these two boys, which really suits my purpose. Because, of course, Jesus' purpose was to say that the father in the story is not who we think he is, right? good, isn't it? I like that. What the father does is he envelopes his sons. Despite their behavior, he envelopes his sons. And he wants to seal them 
in that envelope. And it is the envelope of his love. And he wants to make sure that that love stays sealed. And so he puts onto it his imprimatur. The very symbol that's on the ring that gets put back on his finger is imprinted into this wax. And it is the imprimatur of grace. He is grace to these boys. We've got a younger son, an older son, and we've got a father who is grace. The younger son has rejected the father. The younger son has rebelled. The younger son has recast himself. Don't consider me your son anymore. I don't want that. And the older son, he's rescinded the father's love. He has resented the father for a long time. And he has recriminated everybody else in this story to be to blame for the pain that he is feeling. And the father looks at these self-narratives and he rejects them both. He rejects the narrative that his sons project onto him. He rejects the narrative that they project onto themselves. He rejects what is hostile to his grace. He rejects what is hostile to the love that he has never stopped feeling for these boys. Wherever they have gone, whatever they have done, whatever story they want to bring back, it does not change the fact that they are and always will be in the envelope of his love. So the father says to the younger son, I'm going to reincorporate you, reincorporate you into the family. Where's his ring? Where's his robe? Put some sandals on his feet. Give him back the status that he had when he left. And, now the conservative evangelicals don't enjoy this point, but if you read this story properly, you'll realize that the son has made up this, this repentant story back in the far country. What I'm going to go and do is I'm going to say to my dad this. And what the father does is that he stops him from giving the confession. Shut it, he says. Put a ring on his finger, put a robe on his back, put sandals on his feet. My love for him is not predicated on his moral performance. It is bigger than that. And the father says, I re-son you. I re-brother you. You are welcome. You are loved. And the father goes to the older son, who needs to be reminded who he is, who needs to be reminded how much the father has loved him and what that has meant for him. And he needs to be told a different narrative, which is that that love is not predicated on his reciprocation. You don't have to give it back. You don't have to give it back. That's not how love works. You don't have to serve me. You have to be subservient to me. You have to bend your will to me. Just live in the household of grace. Just take the love that is yours. It comes without cost. And he has to be re-sunned and re-brothered. This is your brother who was dead and is now alive. This is your brother. Remember, remember, put back together the love relationships 
that we need you to be in. And he says to both sons, here's the interesting thing. We always find this a very maudlin story. He says to both sons, now that we've sorted all that stuff out, get your face in there. We're going to have a party. The father's desire to the younger son who has, who has to go out and embrace is that he wants him to come to a party. The father's desire to the older son who refuses to come to the party is that he goes out. The father goes out to two sons and says to them both, come back into my love. And I don't want to recriminate with you for your attitude to me. I want to have a party to celebrate who you are and how loved you are. I want to envelope you in my love, and I want to seal that with the imprimatur of my grace. Big round of applause for my lovely balancing act. Thanks for voice. Lord, because I am a sinful man, and Jesus says, I know, I know. But here's the thing, I'm going to make you a fisher of men. Because Jesus could see that Peter in time would submit to the love of the Father. Jesus has come to help Peter submit to the love of the Father. It's powerful stuff. When Jesus goes to the Samaritan well, a place where he's not supposed to be, and he encounters a woman, and it's a one-to-one thing which is kind of not appropriate at the time, and the woman he chooses happens to be somebody who's carrying a backstory, who's carrying a narrative in which she survived five divorces. Now, we don't know in the text where the divorces came from, and in a culture where the men divorce the women more often than not, it might be that she has been rejected five times and has done nothing to cause this to happen, but she certainly doesn't fancy being married again because the man she has now is not her husband. And Jesus points all this out to her. That's her narrative. That's her backstory. And do you know what she does? She contests with him the reality of the faith of Israel by quoting the history of the patriarchy. What is she thinking? What is she thinking? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, men, that's what we're looking for, for your identity. Jesus says, you have an identity which transcends everything you've ever done. And it is more beautiful than you understand. And just then, just then, The wind of the Spirit blows through her hair. She gets it. She gets that Jesus rejects her narrative. And she becomes the most powerful evangelist yet seen in the Gospels. The Gennarasane demoniac is somebody who was not expecting a visit from Jesus. He was at the very end of where it is possible to be as a Jew from anyone who's going to be the savior of the Jews. He's even in a field which is covered in pig excrement just to make it really, really plain how foul, how lost, how horrific, how at the end of the game his narrative is at. And what happens is Jesus wades through the pig excrement and he comes all the way and he finds him and he apprehends him and he says to him, Whatever's been done, whatever's in this narrative, if you submit to the love of God, I will undo it. And Jesus does. He undoes it. And he puts him in his right mind from the awful place where he had been, where he'd been anticipating torture from God, the narrative that he deserves. He finds nothing but love from God. And he submits to that love. And Jesus reclothes him and says, now go tell. And he does. He goes to 10 cities. He's one of the best evangelists in the gospel, telling them of what God's love can achieve when it reverses the narrative that the self wants to give, that the self has fallen into. When a sinful woman is moved 
by her backstory, by her narrative. And she wants to sort of slip in and interrupt what is obviously very important that's going on here. And she gets to Jesus and all she can do is crawl under the table and weep on his feet and wipe him with her hair. And the narrative that she has been given and the narrative that she's rehearsing is the one that the men rehearse in front of her. He should realize what kind of woman it is that's touching him. And Jesus sees in the intimacy, in the tears, in the paralanguage of the submission to the love of God that here is someone who has submitted her narrative to the love of God and God is going to give the love back. That is what's going to happen. And nothing, no man, no church politics, no religious belief is going to stop the intensity and the beauty of this moment. And Jesus says to all the collected men, do you see this woman? And makes her a paragon of love because she has received much love, says Jesus. When you submit to the love of the Father, when you receive much love, that's what makes love come out of you. And she goes on her way. To the woman who decides to impose herself in a kind of mad act onto the intelligentsia show, this big conference that's happening. And she realizes in somewhere in her spirit or in her soul that this place is better filled with expensive perfume than it is with cheap words. And she comes and she does this incredible thing and a narrative is pushed immediately onto her that what she's done is scandalous and is negative to the poor and is bad news and she shouldn't be doing this waste. And Jesus says, shut up. The beauty of what has been done here, the beauty of what has been done here will cause this woman's memory to be locked forever to mine. Because you know what? God loves tears and intimacy. God loves beauty. God loves a narrative that is not spoken with words which defame or deprecate us. He loves it when the real person reacts to the sun. If you wanted more evidence of Jesus as the reverser of narratives, think about him hanging on the cross. Now, ancient Bible translation says that the people hanging beside him were thieves. Well, that's not true because if the Romans were to crucify every thief, there would be carnage. Crucifixion was reserved for one crime. Sedition against the Holy Roman Empire. Terrorism, as the Romans would call it. Brigandry, as the Herodians and the, the teachers of the law who were complicit with Rome would call it. Freedom fighting, as the people who were hanging there would call it. And here's this man who's come to the end and who's crucified because of his actions. He tells off his friend for abusing Jesus and he says, we're only getting what we deserve. And you wonder what it is that they've done in their freedom fighting. His narrative, in fact, the narrative of Israel's holy jihad against the oppressing enemy is hanging there. Failed. And you know who's hanging next to him? The narrative of love apparently failed, but succeeding 
in the mission of God. And do you know what in his dying breath Jesus has got time to do? He's got time to let one more unworthy person into heaven. He's got time to let one more person who won't pray a prayer, who won't show a discipline, who won't repent, who won't do whatever it is that the formula says he needs to do, just for asking, just for asking. Jesus says, because of the fact that I am the solution to what you think the narrative is, that the solution is self-giving love. You will be with me in paradise. Now, what's this got to do with Gethsemane? Because someone might argue, and this potentially does argue, that you can accept all that, but there's a layer above it, which is that if you don't copy Jesus um, in the Gethsemane stuff, then you're not, there's, some, there's something sort of not deep about your faith. So Josh Tyndale is going to come and remind us of something, and then I'm going to conclude. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain, now remain in my love. If you obey my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have obeyed my Father's commands and remained in his love. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends for everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. Then the Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. This is my command, love each other. If we needed any evidence that Jesus is the arch rejecter of narratives, then we go to Gethsemane and we sit with him and we notice something about him, which is that it's not just for other people. He rejects his own narrative. He does not want this. He does not want this cup. He doesn't want this agonizing death. He doesn't want what God has in mind. And he asks God, could you just take it away? And he goes back hoping that his earthly friends will give him some succor, some support, and they're asleep, and that's no flipping use. And he goes back again, and God must have answered because he changes the prayer. He says, well, if it can't happen unless I drink the cup then I need your will to be done. But there's still an if at the beginning of the question. There's still a hope that something might be worked out. Jesus, unlike every other story we've told and the dozens of others that are in the Bible, does not have to submit to the love of God. He already is the love of God. There's no submission required here. He has lived his 32 years on this earth under the canopy of the love of God. He is the love of God. He expresses the love of God to everyone he meets. He doesn't have to submit to anything here. He has a right. But he and the Father are interested in something which Jesus called greater love. And because he knows that greater love is the will of the Father, he says, not what I want, what you want. It's a greater love, just like the prodigal father. It's a greater love which loves nonetheless. It's a greater love which loves independent of self-narrative. I don't care what you've done. I don't care if you have been in the far country sinning. 
It is irrelevant to me. I'm going to love you. I don't care if you've been in a near country, not able to connect with me, not able to feel close to me. It doesn't matter. I still love you. I don't care what the narrative you want to give me is, says God. Because my love envelopes you, and it is sealed with the imprimatur of my grace. And I'll tell you this, something that nobody in Jesus' story has ever understood. Wherever love goes, wherever love is, is out, wherever love wins, joy follows. Joy follows. The prodigal's father wants to have a party. He wants to have a party. He doesn't want a maudlin self-identity crisis where they without well, let's have a serious conversation about you two boys and how you've disappointed me. He doesn't want that. He wants a big study. They're going to kill the fatted calf. That's enough meat for a whole community. He wants to testify to everybody how much he loves his sons and how it's all going to be all right now. And he wants to give the sons a role in the household of grace. The love of the Father is a love that redeems you through role. It does not redeem you to some sort of disembodied state where you can be a devoted disciple until heaven comes. You are given a role in the community of grace, and the role is the one that the Father gave you when he made you. And what you're supposed to do is empower that role with love. And wherever love goes, joy follows. Joy follows. Joy follows. Joy follows. Joy follows. That's what he's trying to say. Are you serious about it? Jesus is the arch rejecter of the self-narrative. Whether it's a narrative of sin that you cannot get over, whether it's a narrative of worth that you cannot get past, whether it's a complicated rational narrative of discipleship and devotion, please be aware it does not matter. You are in the envelope of the Father's love, and it has been sealed around you with the imprimatur of grace independently of the narrative you came in the door with. Let me plagiarize Jesus. If this seems good to you for your soul, for your discipleship right now, then can I say, submit ye first to the love of God. And all these other submissions will be added unto thee. Amen.